this podcast may have explicit content and also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Monday, February 25th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Kim Jong-un is taking a choo-choo train through China to get to Vietnam. I say choo-choo train, not to diminish the dear leader, but because it is in fact an older model of train. It's not one of those trains that would adapt well to the 18,000 miles of high-speed rail. China has more of the chugga-chugga-choo-choo locomotive of yore. It is green, therefore it is Percy. I think that is the Thomas the Tank Engine green friend that has been a while since the kids watched. This to me is sad. It is sad that this is our adversary. I suppose it would be tougher for us as a country if we were facing down the best and the brightest. In fact, our current leadership doesn't seem very much up to facing down the best and the brightest, but our enemies are all just old and decrepit and sad and weird. They're decades and sometimes centuries behind us. Ever see the Russian aircraft carrier? Well, the Kuznetsov has a record of engine failure. In 2012 in the Bay of Biscay, It was floundering in heavy seas and had to be rescued by a tug. It's had engine failures in the Mediterranean, too. That's the Admiral Kuznetov. It's spewing smoke and requiring several support vessels as it tries to traverse the English Channel. So sad. And remember how Trump would always talk about the the, the barbarians of ISIS and how they demonstrated their despicableness by drowning prisoners in cages? Well, in a way, doesn't this kind of undercut their claim of potency? I mean, they have cages. They're using cages. They're out on the battlefield dragging along the cages. I mean, in America, all we can do is rain down terror from the skies and quickly vaporize populations in the thousands. But we don't have cages that we dunk people in. It's like a 16th century witch trial or a school carnival. There are countries out there with more impressive capabilities. The Chinese, they're pretty good at hacking and naval stuff, which is why they hack pretty quietly and keep the naval stuff to themselves without their black smoke belching aircraft carriers limping along or their chugga-chugga-choo-choos or their cages. Not the cages! No, not the dunk tank! That the most powerful country on Earth is even concerning itself with these pikers and Counting victories against them as great achievements says something about us. Maybe it says that we're not as invulnerable as we pretend. Or maybe it just says that our insecure leader has such a desperate need to punch down that these are the only dregs beneath him. On the show today, what the Oscars, the Virginia governorship, and Amazon HQ have in common. But first, he's the latest presidential aspirant to drop by the gist Pete Buttigieg is the mayor of South Bend. He's a millennial. He's openly gay. He's quite thoughtful. I think he's going to be president someday. Will it be in 2020? Let's find out. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morf. 
And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. The last mayor of a U.S. city to seriously vie for the presidency was Clinton. No, not Bill Clinton, George Clinton. The guy from P-Funk? No, the guy from the early 1800s who is a Republican Democrat and his candidacy, such as it was, gave way to Madison's. Why is it that mayors, even mayors of cities that run well, as New York did under Clinton, don't often vie for the presidency? My guest, Pete Buttigieg, will answer this and other questions. He's the mayor of South Bend, and I'm eager to get his thoughts on the proposed George Clinton candidacy. Hello, Mayor Pete, as they call you. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Well, what about that question? It seems like mayor's a pretty good job in terms of being an executive and getting things done. Why have they been ignored in U.S. history? Well, I think the tradition and the convention has said that you've got to uh, have a lot of Washington experience. And and we seem to, for the most part, except for some governors uh, some of the time, our country seemed to prefer people who'd been kind of marinated in the the U.S. Congress and the Washington environment. But uh, I think that was before we had reached the current level of paralysis in Washington. And now I'm starting to think that the less time you have to do with the U.S. Congress, the better in some respects politically. Uh, You know, that's not to disparage the work that goes on there. But I think when cities are arguably the uh, most functional level of U.S. democracy that we have left, it's time for another look at that local level and ask whether we wouldn't be better off making sure Washington starts looking more like the best-run cities and towns in the U.S. instead of the other way around. What's the municipal workforce of South Bend, the number? Just over 1,000 people. It's about a $300 million a year operation. That's everything from folks who pick up the trash to uh, police officers, firefighters, and the people who fill in the holes in the road. So my question is, why do you think that experience, laudable though it may be, will scale to the vast bureaucracy of the presidency? Well, look, the re- the reality is that nobody walks into the Oval Office knowing what it's like to be president of the United States, except maybe Grover Cleveland when he came back for his second round. And I understand that it's audacious for somebody in my position, but I would argue it's audacious for somebody in any position to think that they can comfortably occupy it. And yet what we do every four years or eight years is we send somebody into that office based on whatever experience they have. The experience I have is guiding a city through a transformation. And I think somebody who's been a mayor of a city of any size, you know, getting the phone call on everything from uh, uh, an economic development deal to uh, a racially sensitive officer-involved shooting is highly relevant to a job that, in my view, basically has three parts. One, implement policy. Two, uh, capably run an organization. And uh, three, bring people together and call them to their highest values. And, you know, the, the reality in terms of management is you could be a very senior U.S. senator and have never in your life managed more than 100 people. I get that a, a city workforce in any city is not the same as the federal workforce, but I also think that that kind of executive on-the-ground experience is highly relevant. And funny as it sounds for the, the 37-year-old in the race, uh, I've got more years of, of government experience than the president, but also more years of government executive experience 
experience than the vice president, and I have more military experience in wartime under my belt than anybody to walk into the Oval Office since George H.W. Bush. So as cheeky as it sounds for somebody my age, experience is a big part of why I think I belong in this conversation. That is true. Everything you're saying is true in terms of the experience. And I think voters love stories of hands-on experience, but I'm thinking in terms of practical, you walk into the Oval Office and you can't be hands-on. You, I've listened to many stories. I've read your book. Every shooting, every tragedy in your neighborhood, you go there. It's extremely important for your face to be seen. It's just impossible. So I'm going to ask you maybe a question you haven't had before. Can you give me an example of a mayoral triumph that was based mainly on delegation and not you personally rolling your sleeves up and riding herd, but still getting a great result? Well, yeah, of course, that's a big part of how the job works, right? I mean, as much as I like to be on the ground, I mean, I went out with a news crew recently to help them understand what our street teams go through and literally filled in a pothole for them so they could see how it works. But the reality is, as a mayor, you're most of the time you're conducting. Uh, other people are playing the instruments. And so bringing people together is the most important part of the role. And that's true whether, uh, you know, I find out about a racially sensitive uh, police situation and I've got to go on television in a matter of hours and make sure that the community is reassured when it's uh, – at risk in our very diverse community of being torn into pieces. Uh, it's true uh, in a situation like how we tackled vacant and abandoned properties where we had to bring together the private sector, the public sector, and uh, empower people from every different corner of our community, from low-income residents in neighborhoods that had experienced uh, blight and neglect who weren't even trusting at the outset that we were going to be doing this with them and for them instead of to them, to people who could bring together the, the financial resources to get something done. The reality is you have to do things large and small, right? One minute, uh, I try to do my job by sitting down, literally sitting down with a constituent who's maybe uh, grabbed me somewhere and trying to understand what their issue is. Another minute, I know that the only tool I have to reach as many people as I need to in the time that I need to is through a television camera. I have, uh, I read in your book, Studebaker was the biggest employer in South Bend for a number of years. By far, yeah. By far, okay. And you are honest with your constituents telling them, look, Studebaker is not coming back. Would that be a harder sell if it wasn't called Studebaker? Yeah, you're right. The Stutz Bearcat's also not coming back. But if it were called Ford or if it were called Carrier? If it were gone, then I think we'd have to be honest. Look, uh, we can't keep telling people that greatness is going to come out of our past. I do think that there was an advantage in South Bend that, uh, you know, we, somebody from my generation had not seen the factories in their heyday. I only knew them as, as kind of empty hulks, and, and I saw the shards of that industrial ruin around me and thought about how we could have a better city, and, and from that found the motivation to try to persuade a lot of people, many of whom were old enough that they did remember Studebaker up and running, trying to, to help them understand why the future wasn't going to look like the past. But I think that's the same kind of national conversation that we've got to have. I think that uh, people in industrial communities experiencing this disruption have been insulted from the right and from the left. I think the, the Trumpian formula that uh, they have to look backwards in order to get anywhere is insulting. But to be honest, some of the vocabulary that comes from my side of the aisle, especially when it comes to things like retraining, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, we do retraining too, it's important, <laughs> but when we tell people, look, you're broken, we're going to fix you with this retraining program, then you're going to be all better. It's not exactly meeting people where they are, and it's not convincing them that they can thrive in a globalizing, autom- automating economy. You wrote that editorial, that, that uh, op-ed in the local paper, Coming Out is Gay, and when, 2015? 
Uh, yep, 2015. Yeah. And you write that you were well into adulthood before you were prepared to acknowledge the simple fact that you are gay. So have you lived long... Well, let me ask the question this way. Which was harder, admitting it to yourself or the public? That's a fair fight. Both of those were challenging. I did not want to be gay, especially because, you know, by the time I was wrangling with that, uh, there were really two elements to my professional life. One was uh, holding, uh, being involved in politics and looking at holding political office in Indiana. And the other was serving in the military, which uh, did not allow you to be openly gay and serve at the time that I joined. So I didn't exactly make it easy on myself. But I think that uh, if it weren't for the deployment, I might have kept dragging my feet forever on coming out, except that I realized I wasn't getting any younger, that I was uh, a grown man in charge of a city, owning a house, and had no idea what it was like to be in love. And it was just a humiliating and confusing place to be. So I put an end to it, uh, not knowing what the politics would be like. Mike Pence was governor of the state at the time. I happened to be in a re-election race, but but I just knew it was time. And in the end, the community was fine. They they embraced it. They they supported me. Um, there was a little bit of nastiness out there, but most people either let me know that they support me or they went out of the way to let me know they didn't care. They just wanted the potholes filled. And either one of those responses was, was in its own way pretty uplifting to me. Right, but you also talk about this uh, phenomenon where people almost were grateful for the opportunity to demonstrate how okay with it that they were. Yeah, this is really important, I think, for uh, uh, for us to think about as, as change is made because we also need to make sure people feel good about themselves as they are dealing with a dizzying pace of change. So I write about some people I, I knew, older people, maybe a little more conservative, who, who would come up to me. One always sticks out in my mind, came up to me with kind of a mischievous smile and said, I, I met your friend and, and he's wonderful. And I could have lectured her on the difference between a friend and a partner, but um, that was her way of saying she was headed our way. And at a moment when, you know, we had been so divided, especially during the Pence administration, that there was, uh, I think, some risk of people on my side of the debate really pointing fingers at people who just weren't quite comfortable with acceptance yet and and almost pushing them into the arms of the religious right. It was really important to kind of beckon and welcome people onto the right side of history in a way that helped them feel good about themselves, even if they were still kind of gradually uh, coming to terms with that and getting used to it. And I think that might have some lessons about some of the other issues where people my age are very and younger are very, very impatient to see change. But we got to remember some of the um, uh, places that the people on the other side are coming from, especially if we ever want to win them over. All right. I want to talk about a couple policy issues. One you recently floated. Do you think packing or increasing the number of Supreme Court justices Do you think it's a good policy to pursue or just a good idea to consider? I definitely think it deserves to be debated. We've got to be looking at more deep questions than just nibbling around the edges of a system because, uh, you know, the court is on a pathway toward being viewed as nakedly political. And if we allow that to continue, uh, we're going to lose one of the most important institutions in our society. It might even be worse than uh, the, the extent to which the presidency and its value has been diminished or lost in the last few years. So we've got to consider some structural alternatives that preserve the integrity of the court. Uh, we've also got to consider you know, revisiting the Electoral College that twice in my lifetime has overruled the American people and pretty much means as an Indiana voter that most elections, my vote for president doesn't even matter. Uh, and we've got to look at other questions around, even if they require constitutional action, like uh, the role of Citizens United and money in politics, if we really want to call ourselves a democracy. What are you work for McKinsey? You think about these things. What are the second and third order effects, though, of adding seats to the Supreme Court? Play it out when a Republican becomes president, maybe someday, and controls a couple houses of Congress. 
Well, again, there are a lot of different institutional designs we could come up with, whether it's just a simple addition to the number, which is something that could just keep spiraling, or uh, something a little more fine-tuned. I saw one proposal that I think is very interesting where you have uh, 15 members of the court, five of them are Democrats, uh, five of them are Republicans or appointed by Republicans, and then the other five are selected by the uh, remaining 10, but subject to the rule that all 10 of them have to agree to that person. And so the idea would be uh, to make sure that the balance of the court is never decided by uh, uh, by one party or the other party, but by uh, some some plurality of people who think for themselves. Uh, again, I don't know that any one of these solutions is the right one, but I think the time has come for us to ask about those structural questions, especially because that actually, unlike the uh, uh, electoral college reform or some of the other things we've talked about, according to some theories could be done without any changes to the constitution. All right. I want to do not a lightning round. I'll give you enough. I'll give you plenty of time to answer, but just policy questions I've never heard you considered and some may be uh, out of left field for you. Do you have a an inclination of what the highest tax rate should be before it becomes self-defeating or confiscatory? I've got more math to do before I put forward that's a set good. of numbers. I do McKenzie. think that, uh, <laughs> well, that's what you do. You do, you do the math I first, know. right? Measure, yeah. measure twice, cut once. And I'm also trying to make sure that I'm engaging in a debate about values and ideas the way the right uh, did pretty effectively before we do policy because the, the Democratic Party, I think, has to its detriment plunged right into the policy before trying to win the battle of ideas. But look, I think the highest marginal tax rates for income taxes are, probably do need to be adjusted, if only because they got slashed uh, without regard to what it would do to the deficit. And there's no question that that's contributed to inequality in our country. Would you be in favor of arming Ukrainians? I have definitely not come out for arming anybody in that uh, conflict. I do think that we need to revisit the regional security framework for that part of the world, especially if Russia is withdrawing from the INF. But uh, we need to make sure that anything we do with regard to uh, our alliances that, uh, that touch the former Soviet bloc are designed to get us to a, a more stable situation there because it could be headed in the wrong direction. Do you think pennies should continue to be minted? Ooh, wow. Definitely never got that one before. I'm not ready to make news here and now that I'm anti-penny, if only out of regard for Mr. Lincoln. I mean, I don't know what's more inefficient now, a $1 bill or a penny. It might be the $1 bill. Um, I don't know why the dollar coins never caught on. I'm going to give that some thought. I, I think, like I said, I think in these times, everything should be... What do you think? I, d I do. I think it's nostalgia, but I've done the math and... Uh, it, it struck me the other day when I saw a penny on the floor and I literally regarded it as garbage. And I said, <laughs> <laughs> a thing to pick up. I'm like, oh, should I throw this away? Yeah. Well, which, which side was up, heads or tails? <laughs> it was on its edge. It was the weirdest thing. <laughs> Pete Buttigieg is uh, exploring, exploring the uh, presidency. You know, all that implies. He's also, as mayor of South Bend, the author of the book, Shortest Way Home, One Mayor's Challenge, and a model for America's future. Thank you, Mayor Pete. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And now the spiel. The best picture Oscar goes to... Green Book. Oh no, Twitter's gonna have a meltdown. Or at least my Twitter. Gavin Agat's Twitter loved it. But all the right-thinking people I follow, or who are followed by the right-thinking people I follow, believe 
Two things I found out this past weekend. One is that even with the edited out part, Diane Feinstein could have been a little less rude to those junior earth savers. And two, Green Book exists to make white people feel good about themselves, as opposed to every other best picture winner of years past that exists to what? Discomfort the establishment? Anyway, I'm in a perfect position to speak about this one interesting aspect of Green Book that I want to address. And the reason I'm in this perfect position is that I am unsullied by having seen it. Tabula rasa. I do not know what it says or means or how it says it. I just wish to point to it as a phenomenon that has been playing out in lots of other ways. And the phenomenon is this African-American opinion being mistaken for progressive opinion. We hear the progressive opinion loud and clear. We assume African-American opinion is part of that, and quite often we're wrong. So with Green Book, this thing was poison to progressives. It was a driving Miss Daisy redux, even though we've had 30 years to let Miss Daisy do her own damn driving. And not to defend driving Miss Daisy, but it was Dan Aykroyd's finest work. Anyway, there was unanimity of opinion that Green Book was god-awful, at least among the people who look at movies in a socially conscious way. The ones who are guided by what Wesley Morrison describes as caring, quote, less about whether a work is good art, but simply whether it's good for us, good for the culture, good for the world. And Green Book was deemed not to be, which having not seen it, I cannot say, but I do get the complaint. From what I understand, a white guy teaches a black guy how to eat fried chicken. Uh, I understand why that would be a non-starter for many. But here's the broader point. I think many African Americans may have liked Green Book. Okay, maybe not, but I don't think Hatred of Green Book was nearly as widespread in the African-American community as it was in the progressive community. Now, African-American progressives certainly hated it, but not all progressives are African-American, and not all African-Americans are, are progressive. I couldn't get any statistics about what the black audience thought of Green Book per se. But here is some data. CinemaScore polled audiences, and audiences gave it an A+. Uh, CinemaScore tries to get a decent representative of all audiences, a decent cross-section. So it just can't be the case that many African-American moviegoers gave it a failing grade if the cumulative score on the movie is the highest possible score. After it won, I saw many African-American thought leaders, people of color, thought leaders threatening to burn their TVs, but I also caught wind of Magic Johnson tweeting out that he loved Green Book, and there on stage was Congressman John Lewis, who introduced the film at last night's ceremony. I can bear witness that the portrait of that time and place in our history is very real. It is seared in my memory. Black men and women, our brothers and sisters, treated as second-class citizens. Okay, so we at least find some prominent civil rights activists, black leaders, who didn't hate Green Book. Or maybe you could say, look, we're allowed one exception. If you got your head beat in by police at Selma, you're allowed not to hate it. But everyone else, you're all canceled. My assumption, though, is that progressive America, speaking for black America, is not actually the same thing as if black America were asked to speak for itself. I'm going to refine this even further. These speakers who are making noise and having their opinions heard in progressive America are sounding slightly different notes than what the mass of black America would say if they were all given a megaphone. This seems to be happening a lot lately. 
Amazon was chased out of Queens thanks to the clamoring of progressive voices. But a poll that Quinnipiac University took right after plans were announced to go into Queens showed that 55% of African-American New Yorkers wanted Amazon there. A more recent poll by Siena had black support at 70%, while 25% of African-Americans disapproved and 81% of Latinos approved of Amazon's presence compared to 17% who didn't. Majorities of white voters in each poll disapproved. Now, since all Republicans, there are Republicans in New York, since all Republicans in New York wanted it, it basically comes down to everyone against it was progressive. And the vast majority of those people were white progressives. There were some black progressives. There were some black Latinos who were opposed to it. There were some black people who probably wouldn't identify as progressive who were opposed to it, but a vast majority of Latinos and blacks wanted it. And we were led to believe otherwise because we listened to the progressive voices. So often we conflate the views of black Americans with the views of liberal Americans, or we assume the views of black Americans are even more liberal than liberal Americans. But this isn't the case. In many ways, African Americans are the most conservative voters among liberal Democrats. Now, I don't say among white Democrats, because that includes swing voters and suburbanites who maybe dabbled with Republicans in the past. But among those who are pure, reliable, on the left of the American political spectrum, African Americans in many ways are the most conservative. Let's look at Virginia, where every single Democratic public voice who was given a microphone or an op-ed pen said that Governor Ralph Northam had to go after he allowed D.W. Griffith to serve as the artist in residence of his yearbook page. But by a margin of 54 to 31%, black voters in Virginia wanted him to stay. Why? Why does this keep happening? I've got a couple theories. First of all, I blame the news media, which is an easy thing to do, but in this case, accurate. I believe, as part of the media and also someone who interacts with it closely, what they do, what bookers do, what people who cast about for voices is they seek out a pretty narrow range of voices. When we say diversity... Uh, they know, well, have we achieved a racial balance? Yes, that's all we have to do. And they don't really push for ideological diversity within the range of black voices that they've contracted with. Also, I've been thinking about this. I think it's plausible that there is pressure for a public intellectual in the black community to voice opinions that they know are quote unquote right, rather than outwardly dwell in the gray areas because they wouldn't want to misrepresent their community. They think they, I think rightly so, they think they have a duty or a burden. You know, when a, when a black speaker gets to go on TV, he or she has the consciousness that they're speaking for a community more than themselves. Contrast this to, say, me. When I go on TV, I never say to myself, I'm speaking for anyone but myself. There's a school of thought that says that's white privilege. So be it. But, you know, sometimes when I go on TV, when I'm on CNN or MSNBC, I might even play devil's advocate if I hear the opinion just going all in one direction. I might say, and I I did say this in the case of Northam, you know, we're not his constituents. Maybe we should see what they have to say before we uh, throw this guy out of office. Again, maybe if I weren't Mike Pesca, quasi-prominent host of The Gist, but Mike Pesca, African-American academic or strategist, or host of a podcast which represents the black community, I'd be more wary to break away from the consensus that the man who wore blackface needs to go. Maybe. Beyond the dynamics of mass media, there's social media. I think this plays a big role. It's pretty maladaptive to voice opinions that contradict the in-group. 
when you're on social media. The way to get likes and follows and retweets is to be a more extreme version of whatever your niche of Twitter is saying. I bet there are a lot of black folks with prominent Twitter profiles who actually didn't hate Green Book or who didn't necessarily want Northam to go or who were fine with Amazon setting up shop in Long Island City. But what's their margin in saying so? You don't get a fair hearing. You don't get praised. No one says, well, I appreciate you dissenting from the dominant view. No, you get ratioed. You mark yourself as an outcast. Your mentions are toxic for at least a little while. Social media is an aggressive enforcer of groupthink and a merciless punisher of apostasy. So not only do all the takes tend towards more and more flamethrowing extremes, but also the slightest dissent gets crushed. And you quickly learn that the way to thrive in this environment is to keep those dissenting opinions to yourself. And what happens is the users of Twitter get an inaccurate sense of where the sentiment really is. And the programmers of broader media, because they use Twitter as a focus group and a guide, see what people are saying, they fail to bring the rest of us the full panoply of opinion. The thing is, all this said, I bet Green Book's not that great a movie. I haven't seen it. I don't know if you know that. I mean, if it weren't a cinematic, but if it were a gubernatorial undertaking, I bet it would be the Ralph Northam of film. And also, it might have won the Oscar for reasons other than quality. Things like voter backlash over, over Netflix or rank choice voting. But I also strongly suspect that while much of the opinion that you're reading today is guaranteeing that it will age poorly, it will age worse than Crash or Driving Miss Daisy, I wouldn't be surprised if the opposite occurred. Those movies were all held as great for a time and then discovered to be flawed. Yet, this movie is being cited pretty universally as really flawed, and it just might be rehabilitated as, you know, kind of entertaining for what it is. As I said, I didn't watch it. Don't know if you know that. This allows me the perfect out when I nod along with the Twitter crowd who's telling us Roma was robbed. Indeed. Indeed it was. Such a shame. By the way, I haven't watched that one either. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bien-Aimé and Daniel Schrader won the Oscar for Outstanding Achievement in Sound Editing. I mean, did you hear the way that clip of the aircraft carrier was woven in seamlessly? Just genius. T.J. Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She just watches the Oscars for Nick's scores. After all these years, it finally worked out. If you wish to subscribe to the GIST newsletter, it's, it's a great read every Saturday in your inbox. It recounts what we were talking about this week. Go to slate.com slash gistnews. There you will find the answer to our trivia question. Here is our trivia question. Walt Disney holds the record for the most Oscar awards, 26. But if I told you that at one point, a man with no acting, directing, or show business experience had twice as many awards as Walt Disney, what event would I be referring to? Hmm, the gist. First prize, an Oscar. Second prize, set of steak knives. Third prize, 102 Dalmatians straight to video. You're fired. That was a scene from Glenn Gary, Glenn Close. Oomperu depru depru, and thanks for listening.